to The New Disruptors, a show that tries to inspire you to make things without getting all sentimental about it. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Lumi makes a fabric dye that becomes permanent when exposed to bright, full-spectrum light as from the sun. But that's not why the founders, Jesse Genet and Stéphane Angoulon, are on the show. Rather, it's the way, starting with an obsession of Jesse's when she was 17, the two bootstrapped their way into a company using collaboration, crowdfunding, and craftiness. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks. Nice to be here. So we met in this very funny way as I happened to be in Los Angeles and mentioned I was uh, I was in Pasadena and Stefan, you said, hey, uh, why don't you come by our offices? I looked up what you're doing and found two amazing things. One is in Los Angeles, you were only a few minutes away from where I was, which is impossible. <laughs> uh, it's like, I was like, it's a 12 minute drive. I can do that. And second was I, I'd heard in passing of what you were doing, but I didn't realize how far along you were. So you two have developed a very, um, I want to say straightforward product in the sense that you can explain what it is in a sentence, right, Jesse? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's light sensitive fabric dye that allows you to permanently print images onto any fabric. I think the process of getting from that idea, which I know you had many years ago to something that you could release and sell. I feel like you've gone through all of these different interesting phases that are, are relevant for listeners about figuring out First, coming up with a compelling vision. You've been obsessed with this for a long time. And then working through all of these different ways that are non-traditional to get funding, to reach an audience, to develop your product and produce it, and then work in uh, different collaborative spaces, uh, which this kind of creativity is typical as opposed to um, unusual. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me, you said um, when we met in person, you were telling me about where you started with this idea, even in the first place, when you were uh, just a teenager. Yeah, so I grew up in Detroit, kind of just the suburbs of Detroit, and I got fascinated with printing because I tried to start a t-shirt business in my basement. I was kind of entrepreneurial. I don't know how because my parents <laughs> were not. I just, they're a school teacher and a lawyer, lawyer. but I, I decided to start a t-shirt business in my basement and I instantly learned how difficult it was to print. I had to invest in a lot of equipment. I had to ask for Christmas one year. I had to ask everyone for different pieces of equipment so I could get started. Everything was very toxic. It was very difficult. My results were kind of not good at first. And so I kind of thrust me into a, an area where I was fascinated with why it was so difficult when in this day and age, you know, and this was just several years ago, People can do open heart surgery, like a man kind of, a man walked on the moon like 40 years ago. Why was it so hard for me to print a t-shirt? I kind of became obsessed with the fact that that shouldn't be so difficult. It seems like that's still the case too, is uh, even though it's easier to get t-shirts printed, it's difficult to print t-shirts as it were. Like there's all these places you can go to as a service bureau, or if you want to get a t-shirt printed for your business online, sure. I mean, t-shirts are the, t-shirts are like the cigarettes in prison. It's like uh, every, every site that's trying to sell something, part of their yeah. merchandise is a t-shirt through Cafe Press, yeah. but it's still hard for individuals to make shirts that don't look cheap or where the, yeah, the, exactly. uh, the iron on the transfer doesn't come off really easily. So what, what did you find in the middle of this obsession to figure out what how to do this process more easily, less toxically, and yeah. on a smaller scale. What did you find? So I ended up doing a lot of research, and in a and I found a reference to something in an old book from the early 60s that was just referred to as photo dye. And I had taken a photo 101 class. You know, I'm still in high school. I had taken a photo 101 class, and I kind of knew what that what what that might mean. It was essentially a true fabric dye that was photographic, that developed its color in UV light, and so you could use sunlight. And I in instantly knew that that meant that I could actually print in a different way. Instead of, you know, with screen printing through physical contact where I have to burn a screen or even through digital where I can feel the ink and, and kind of different things like that. This meant that I could actually kind of burn an image into a t-shirt just using the sunlight in my backyard. And I became instantly intrigued with what that meant in terms of putting the power of ideating and prototyping ideas into someone's hand. All you needed was that bottle of dye and some sunlight and a negative or something to block light. And that, like that kind of empowering element was what fascinated me. This is kind of the 3D printing equivalent for people working in, in three-dimensional design, right? It used to be hard to make a t-shirt that looked approximately like, like what you wanted. I mean, whether you're doing one-off craft work or, or you're doing mass production, to prototype it and get something that looked like the final result. Uh, my wife has been researching a t-shirt business, for instance, and what she'd like to do ultimately is dye sublimation, where the ink mm -hmm. gets pretty well soaked into the shirt and is permanent and it lasts longer. Your process is very close to that, and even though it's a one-off process that you have to paint each shirt, it seems like you're providing a tool for people 
who previously wouldn't have had a, a low-cost method of even prototyping, much less making craft products. Right. Kind of is that that factor to, yeah, it's that tool that you can put into someone's hand where they can literally in an afternoon go out in their backyard and, and see their ideas come to life. And then those projects that they create are not just craft projects, are not just things that they then need to kind of put away uh, into a safe place. They're fully washable. That Those prints are permanent. They could sell those items. You know, it's really, even though the process is kind of DIY, the results are professional. One of the the things that's interesting on a chemical level, not to get too chemistry nerdy here, but is that uh, the dyes that we manufacture, what they're most related to are dyes that are used in military uniforms or service uniforms or those orange prison jumpsuits. And the, the properties that are important in those types of garments are that they're able to be bleach washed in a, in a big vat that they're able to withstand being out in the sun all day. They need to be very strong and washproof. What we've developed is this chemistry where we can apply the dye and fix it using sunlight, but it retains all those properties. So you could actually bleach wash a print that you've made uh, with Inco dye and it would still withstand that. This is like, I want a bell to go off when we talk about each way in which there's some element of how you're connecting people up. And, and I think in the first way, from the product standpoint, you're making a product available to people who can then use it to create one-off items or, or a prototype as well. So this ties directly into the Etsy economy, mm-hmm. to the Kickstarter economy, to the even the, the blogging economy where people are using merchandise is you're giving people a tool Again, I think of it like 3D printing where suddenly a product designer can make a, either a, or someone who has very little product design experience who doesn't need that expertise. Yeah. I don't have to get a screen printing apparatus right. or go to every outfit in town and figure out what the requirements they have. I can sit down with a brayer and roll ink on a shirt and expose it in the sun and learn in a matter of a few shirts what's going to work. Same thing, I think, with 3D prototyping is it gives people the ability to iterate and test very rapidly on their own, even in the case of 3D printing, if they're using a service bureau, it's still a relatively rapid process compared to anything that went before. Iteration, to me, always seems like a critical part of design. When you create a tool like your like your fabric dye that can allow people to iterate, does that tie into what you're seeing with people who are using your product, that they want to be able to work through things, not just say, oh, I've got an idea, I'm putting it on the T-shirt. It's more like, no, now I can test out things? Well, the cost of failure is so much lower, and I think that's that's something that really ties into a lot of the technology that has come out in the past 10 years, whether it's everything that's Amazon Web Services uh, type of thing or all the SaaS kind of software that's out there. I think the maker movement, when you're talking about 3D printing, is the physical counterpart to that, where we're able to really reduce the cost of failure and, and allow inter- iteration to happen at a much quicker speed or a more accessible cost. Well, I should say, too, is you both went to the Art Center College of Design and are both come at this from the artistic side. You're both business people now, and you've obviously learned a lot about chemistry coming into this uh, and product manufacture. But you two think as artists, this isn't a, uh, we've got this thing and we're going to figure out how to market it, people. It's, I've got a vision, and this is the way in which I, people can achieve a vision using this thing we've created. Well, we actually both studied um, industrial design, and so we were always interested. I think what we what got us into Art Center was an interest in functional art or things that can be beautiful but also can be mass produced. Oh, I love that. That's I was trained as a graphic designer and that was always that intersection in 2D was yeah, you make it beautiful. Well, make it beautiful and functional, make it aesthetically pleasing, but it has to sell a message. If it doesn't do what the client needs, then you have failed. It might be success as art and a failure as graphic design. It sounds like industrial design, same kinds of goals. If it is, you could make something purely aesthetic, but you, your goal really in the industry is to make something that is both wonderful in one level and Functionally reproducible in another. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's, <laughs> wait, that's I, that too. <laughs> 100% agree with that. Yeah. I mean, um, with me getting into industrial design, I, I grew up, as I mentioned, in Detroit. My stepdad was actually sort of a technology developer of sorts. He has a lot of different work, like for military contracts and some very kind of high, high tech stuff. And so I got exposed to, to that world. And then I sort of always had a natural inclination for business 
in, in just the sense that I loved seeing my projects take root in the real world, and I sort of understood early on that business was a means to that end. But having that experience of seeing his very high-tech world and then being just kind of naturally creative, industrial design for me was this way of bridging those two worlds. I wanted to see, I would see a lot of these high-tech projects that a lot of creatives never really got to touch because they just kept being in this really kind of different realm of military contracts and all that sort of stuff. So for me, I went to study design hoping that I could do what we're kind of doing now, like bring techno, you know, technically relevant things to, to market, but in a creative way, like in a way that is accessible to a larger amount of people. And you know how to build stuff. That's kind of a yeah. big advantage, I think, too. Yeah, <laughs> and then we love building stuff. It's kind of, um, you know, that's kind of what gets us going. When I visited your space, you showed me this great machine, this kind of, uh, a, 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 it's the sun in a, <laughs> in a box. big metal box. <laughs> what What is that thing? And how did you come to make it? I'll put pictures online. It's this enormous device that produces essentially the equivalent of sunlight. Yeah. The story of it is that, you know, when we started experimenting, I, I met Jessie at Art Center and she had been working on this process for about maybe four years before then, but kind of off and on and, and kind of as a hobby. And, and when we met, we really connected and started experimenting with this in a much more significant way. And we built a series of machines that would help us kind of isolate the, you know, on a scientific level, how this process was working. And so this is actually the one that you're referring to is like the third iteration that was built based on everything that we learned. And we know that the sun develops the dye, and but we wanted to be able to have a very consistent result every time because the sun throughout the day will have different intensity or if you're in a different country at a different latitude or different altitude, you'll have different sure. properties. And so we, we wanted to create this machine that had uh, a set kind of exposure time. And I think it's fair to say that, for, fair to kind of explain that at this time, you know, Stefan and I, we weren't sure if we could bring the process to market. We always had that kind of grand intention that, that it might be possible to actually bring the dyes to market and bring other tools to market and a let, like, you know, kind of open that up. But at the time, we were still just playing. Like, we were trying to see how much reality there was to those concepts. So us building these machines and playing with prints and even selling prints, there was a period of the company where we just sold printed goods to basically raise money to keep researching this. All of these phases were us, you know, playing with the concept. So we played with it for, you know, several years before we really were able to to kind of to release it. So the phase we're in now is really exciting because we finally gotten there. The machine is, is just to explain it to people, is like this four by eight foot, feet, foot <laughs> giant, basically piece of glass underneath it are I think five xenon, like super high power bulbs, the kinds that would be used in a spotlight, a searchlight. (laughs) And uh, so they're extremely powerful. And inside is a sort of uh, mirrored stainless steel parabola parabola that reflects the light back into the glass surface above. And so it's basically a very high powered light table. And what we were using it for for a while is to actually print large furniture panels because we were working with a, ah. a furniture company. And, and, you know, that was kind of our first gig going into, you know, our first Kickstarter campaign and then our first clients. We were actually using the printing process as a way to, you know, put our foot in the door and say, look, we can actually print on all these crazy materials. We, we were doing some prints on leather. We were the only place that they could get that because we owned the technology and we were also designers and wanted to create beautiful furniture made with the process. It's interesting. It's like you've bootstrapped this backwards from the way a lot of these things work, <laughs> but but it's for but I think this is the forward technique now is I was talking to Jason Fried of 37 Signals mm-hmm. recently and his whole shtick that's worked out for him and is working out, I think, for an increasing number of businesses is you don't need outside investment. You need a good idea and you need a way to make money while you reach the scale that you can produce the thing you want. Mm-hmm. And in their side, it was software. So they had, they were a design studio that made a tool and the tool became the business, but the design studio ran, you know, created the money or Jim Kudal with, uh, with his field notes, mm-hmm. uh, collaboration and some other things they were doing. They were a design studio that transmuted into making physical products because the bills got paid while they iterated through and figured out what would work. It sounds like you guys did the same thing yeah. as you had a, but it's fascinating that you, I, I know, Jesse, you had said this process, the ink, uh, uh, the origin is from the 1950s, and I think it illustrates that closed market idea that there was a guy sitting on this yep. 
who owned the rights, yeah. right, for decades and nobody, he wasn't selling it. Right. No, it's fascinating. This is where the power of, of how we've approached it really comes in because the dye uh, itself, called Inco dye, like the dye itself is a component of what we're creating. What we're really creating is a process. You know, like you've mm-hmm. mentioned, we have this app that we're developing. We have, we have guides online. We have accessory products. Um, we help people make negatives. Like at the end of the day, we have, we're trying to create a, a new behavior, a new printing process. And the dye becomes a component. And and clearly, like the dye itself is not just this all-encompassing, like, you know, all-empowering factor because to your point, the dye actually was on the market decades ago. But the problem was it was sitting in a bottle and on the outside of the bottle, it just said vat dye. It didn't explain that it was photographic. Okay, it was hilarious. So basically, I stumbled across this thing that was extremely underutilized. And and what's even funnier is that when I, I tried to explain this to, to the guy, you know, I ended up, you know, we ended up taking over sole manufacturing rights and formula from this character um, later on. But in any case, when I when I was actually talking with him, I tried to explain to him the value of what he owned. And you know what he told me? He told me I was a silly girl. He told me I was a... He, yeah, he, he thought I was just... He thought I was crazy. Oh, he actually thought that it had so little value that he didn't even want to... He was in retirement at this point. He didn't even want to spend the time talking to me in order for me to, like, you know, buy it off him or anything. He, he just thought I was wasting everyone's time. So it's just fascinating because, you know, one man's trash another man's treasure like we've we've taken this component you know this dye and we're making it into a process that now people are using across the world but he thought it was completely useless it's fascinating recognizing that that's available that you discovered it too is amazing given that it was stuck away and the stuff that had been manufactured was away in somebody's <laughs> vault somewhere but i mean think about i think was it bakelite and plastics and Post-it notes. You know, the first post-it notes, they were trying to make a good adhesive. It wasn't a good adhesive. And the first things they did, they coated bulletin boards with the material and you would stick stuff on <laughs> it. Awesome. I mean, they, but and it, now it's obvious. Like once something exists in the world that's useful, yeah. it's immediately obvious. But at the time, the guy's like, who would want like to, what weak would you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's, I think your process, the, the part, and I think why maybe the fellow didn't recognize its value is there's all these things that have to come together at once, as I think they did for for 3D printing or even like a fax machine. Mm-hmm. A fax machine is an amazing combination of like several weak technologies that together transformed a whole segment of business. And with your situation, if you couldn't make negatives easily, and especially mm-hmm. continuous tone negatives, which, which benefit from your process, not being able to do that, very difficult, not being able to take pictures, easily turn the negatives, easily then reproduce, that part of it, say 10 years ago, if it was darkroom based, or you'd be going to not continuous tone, but straight tone, uh, this is from my. I have to. This is. I'm contractually obligated to mention. I was trained as a typesetter on every podcast. But when in uh, the imaging world, we had these lithographic yep. process film film yep. setters, and the film setters produced. A straight tone. It was black yep. or white, and we could do half tones, which would work in your process as well. But today, you can make very easily continuous tone negatives in a way that I don't think was easily possible, affordable, or desirable a decade ago. So the time had to tick away until the other part of your product, the process, was available, not just the the dye. Yeah, and then and then it's almost like an audience had to had to kind of come together too, which I think that the maker movement sort of represents. We have you know we have a lot of people who buy our product who wouldn't have necessarily self-identify as makers, but I think that the the cultural themes that are um, very active because the maker movement exists are also active in, in the people who are our customers. And so I think that our customer had to develop as well. This person who actually sees value in doing their own prints as opposed to just going to a store and buying a graphic tee. Like this, this audience has developed understands I should take that afternoon and make something that really resonates with me or promote a concept that's important to me or I should, you know, should be trying to start my own little fashion line this kind of like the audience had to develop too and so I think it is kind of a beautiful timing you have to have a market for it and Etsy is one of the markets but there's a lot of markets too Etsy is a great one because it provides a way to do one of a kind things and someone could say you know I can take your face and make a beautiful portrait of it on a t-shirt for you and it's going to cost X dollars Mm -hmm. and they can sell that as a as a thing they do or they can make a series of things that are unique or you can do it for fun I mean we were talking when I was there it's like I looked at this immediately I'm like birthday parties. This is birthday parties, mm-hmm. like a non-toxic, mm-hmm. you know, all you need is a washing machine. The kids, you know, you throw it in the washing machine after the kids expose it while they're eating cake. Yep. The, uh, yep. Throw it in the dryer and they go home with a t-shirt because, again, that ease of getting inkjet printer that's cheap enough 
transparency film that's cheap enough, making that negative on the spot, and then having the ink to finish the process. It seems like, and then the mar- and then again, the market for people who want to sell or be part of a market, they can be prototyping, they can be making unique items, they can be making bespoke items, and all of that comes together. Because if you would, I mean, when you had this idea, these markets didn't exist, right? Was there, at the time when you were 17, what could you have done with this with this ink then? I mean, I, and I, I did get my hands on some old stock of it then, and, I, and so I was playing with it. But essentially, um, you know, essentially the only, uh, you know, I would get in my car, I would drive to my local screen printer, and I would, it's, to me, that was the, the world of printing. It was like my local screen printer and then some really, really dorky forums online that I had found, you know? <laughs> and um, <laughs> and so there was there was no other kind of create, like larger creative community of people like sharing beautiful images and things like that. So I would drive down to him, and if, if he didn't know how to do something, then um, then it was essentially just all on me. So, and that's actually part of the birth of this process is I go, went down to him and I really wanted to print a photograph. And I kept saying, I want to print this photograph. I want it to be on this cotton tee. And he would try different things. He'd half tone it and he'd kind of, you know, manipulate it in different ways. And I would always be unhappy. And I kept coming back. And at one point he told me to stop coming. He said, oh, <laughs> he said oh. <laughs> at one point he said, you know what? Like, and again, I was just such, such a, like a persistent little person, but he said, you know what? Like, I can't do what you want. So like, you know, just take this print that I, that I can give you or or just forget it, you know? And and that really kind of lit a fire under me. I was like, no, I'm not going to forget it, you know? <laughs> I'm not going to do this. I'm going to print this photograph. It only took me like a few more years. But in any case, I, so like, but at the time, yeah, it, everything was kind of an arduous process. Like I would try to make my own negatives and it was really hard. So it is, those tools are kind of, uh, you know, there's kind of a confluence of things happening. And I think a big part of that, Safana really making use of is this, you know, is kind of mobile technologies, the app, you know, app culture. We're, we're creating this app. We actually have a new version of the app coming out that allows you to upload an image into it, prototype an idea. So actually use AR capabilities to preview augmented what, reality. Augmented. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> right. I know our world, our world is getting, I was like, Oh yeah. Augmented, oh yeah. Not a <laughs> but yeah. So that's, that's, I think you showed me a demo. I think when I was there, right. Is I could be, I could point at a piece of clothing and it would simulate the color and the mixing exactly. of the color onto it directly, which is yeah. pretty so cool. So then you, to you look could at. save that image and you could then share that with friends. Like so you could prototype a bunch of ideas, you know, and show your friends like I'm, I'm thinking about this design, this design, this design. And so you could share those and save those. And then when you're ready to move forward with the design, you could kind of press a button that says like, you know, add these supplies. And that negative as well as whatever dye and stuff you need for that design will go into your cart. And so you can actually order that negative directly to your doorstep. So that's another alternative. We're really trying to take away those pain points so that this is a process that that anyone can do. And we're really hoping, and we'll see, you know, we'll see how far we can get in this, in this regard. But we're really hoping that because of the ubiquity of kind of wanting to print a t-shirt or wanting to print fabric, we're kind of hoping that between this app and, and the technologies we're releasing, that, that this kind of becomes a certain gateway to the maker movement. Like we're really, we do have a, a lot of our customers currently would, like I mentioned, we're not necessarily self-identify as makers, but we're kind of hoping that we can help funnel them into this whole culture of, of doing things with their hands so we'll see how far we get with that goal but that's that's the plan i'm ecstatic about that because i think anything that gets people off the computer and back with their hands seems like a net gain because we've all come so far away from it and there's i think the maker movement proves that there's a crying desire for people Mm. to do it but people have lack not the, the skills but they lack the connection to make it happen and the maker movement seems to be both education, motivation, and proof of concept that here's how you do it. Other people are doing it. And by the way, this shows the fact that other people doing it means you can do it too. And your product in particular is one of the, like the very easy ways in because I just need the dye and a brayer. I don't need some apparatus. Mm -hmm. And, and I mean, I think that some people feel that way about Arduino. And the hardware platforms, if they're oriented that way, is they're like, oh, I don't have to build a breadboard. I don't have to do any of this. I can buy this machine and just learn a little bit of programming, and I don't have to do that whole work. I keep coming back to this theme that the maker movement lets us, I guess the modern digital component of it, and and this is true with, I think, 3D prototyping, where you're going to make a product in the end, but you want to start with something, and 2D cutting, all those areas that – it takes away some of the fussy work. So mm-hmm. all the prep work and making screen, like yeah. if you want to do screen printing, the setup oh. for that, the knowledge, 
all that the people saying, "All right, get out of my shop because we can't do this thing and you're, you're bugging me now." <laughs> but you know, we're, and I was talking to uh, Maker House, this local uh, maker space that's just opened up in Seattle. They were one of the examples they brought up is a guitar shop where they're using a 2D cutter to cut the blanks for the cars mm-hmm. now, and it cuts some number of hours off every production without reducing any of the craftsmanship because that mechanical cutting part isn't actually a craft. That's just a mechanical sure. part. And you know, letterpress revival where there's these photopolymer printing plates you can get to print and you can still focus on the craft part of letterpress printing of the inking and the impression and elements and so forth but you don't have to do the handset type if you don't want to so the same thing here is that you're bypassing some of the parts that deter people because of the learning curve you're cutting that learning curve down now they still have to learn how to use the material uh, use your your dyes and what material works with it but you're taking out the part that I think puts people off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's really only five things that you need to be able to do this process. You need our dye, you need a negative, and then you need access to washing machine, laundry detergent, and sunlight. And all of those <laughs> things are either free or cost less than 12 bucks. What if I live in a cave, though? Yeah. <laughs> then, no, like I have to step outside. There's always an exception. <laughs> <It's true. laughs> <laughs> no, but it's true though. As I think you're right. It's, it's such a simple. It's a simple starting point. This seems. Uh, I'll make the transition now. This seems to be one of the reasons you folks were successful with Kickstarter. Is that you had a very. I'd say uh, a. You've got the elevator pitch. It's like it's a very simple thing to explain in its essence. Complex to get the product out, mm-hmm. but it's simple to explain. But it's a really compelling thing. And um, you were one of the very first Kickstarter projects when I, I visited their offices recently. They know you guys for two reasons. We'll talk about the second one in a minute because you've done two projects. But the first one was uh, you launched the first project December twenty third, two thousand nine. Says Kickstarter, and you raised uh, was it thirteen thousand, almost six hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. For $12,000 gold. That was a huge, I, the, the problem that we have now is that there's like 13 million, like 13 million dollar projects out there. But at the time, 13,000 right. was huge. It, it was, was one of the biggest no, that was of all crazy. time. It was so big that Perry yeah. and Yancey personally got in touch with us. Yeah. yeah we had a, we had a party in Los Angeles. They came all the way down here. It was, it was amazing. I'm not even joking. Yeah. Oh my God. That's great. Well, they're the night, the thing about Kickstarter that I think is being lost as the company gets really huge is the guys behind it are incredibly oh, yeah. nice. The people, I visited the staff. Everybody there, it's an incredibly wonderful, warm organization, and now they're you know in the hundreds of millions of dollars, but they're still taking the care. I mean, I know people who post you know a few thousand dollar projects, and they still yeah. get the care yeah. from the staff there, yeah. whether it's a million dollars or, or two thousand. But you got you were part of the proof of concept for them that this thing is going somewhere. And your first product, you were selling your rewards was were stuff, was stuff made with the process. Yeah, we sold wallets, um, bags, coasters. So at the time. And, and I think what's funny, looking back, we didn't even explain the process in that first video. We just told people, hey, we're working on something revolutionary. You should, like, believe us, basically. <laughs> like, we, we basically, because we just, the thing was, we weren't trying to be super top secret about it. We weren't worried about, you know, IP or something of that nature. The thing was, we didn't want to make promises we couldn't keep. At that time, we didn't know if we'd be able to bring the process out as a commercial process for other people. We didn't know what we'd be able to do. What we knew is that we had a um, certain amount of dye on hand I was you know and we and we knew that the process was incredible and we could do cool prints and so at the very least we wanted to reward people with that and kind of get our feet wet with seeing where we could take it it's pretty neat so I'm looking back at this now and I'm thinking I remember when this launched because there were only a handful of projects on Kickstarter everyone starts talking about this thing and I'm like is this going to go anywhere and then of course within months they're in the like multi-million dollar range for projects raised because they had a hundred projects that each raised ten thousand or fifteen thousand dollars and it went from there but this is a great stepping stone. So this was part proof of concept. People liked the kind of look that you were getting from it and part funding so you could go to start working on the next production stage? Yeah, yeah. At that at that point, we were, at that point, to, like Stefan was mentioning, we were building our first machines. We were, I mean, to put things in perspective, at that point, we were testing to make sure that we could actually make prints with this technology. We were still, like, early days of testing that the dye, like, we were doing basic research, like, how wash fast is the dye? Like, so this, this money really funded a lot of basic scientific research on the process. Also, we were looking at how 
how we are doing like modern kind of toxicology analysis on the dye, determining whether the formula, whether too. yeah, like perfecting mm-hmm. the formula. We did not just take that formula from the 1950s and poured it right into a modern <laughs> project. We had to we had to basically rework it. So so that phase a few years ago was really basic, and so uh, so it was just it took all we had to basically just print wallets and stuff and get them out to people. We weren't really prepared for more of a conver- commercial venture at that point. I should I should bring up a point too is that um, one of the things that's fascinating about visiting you on site at one of your offices where you have the the production uh, facilities is that you're in this great shared huge campus Mm -hmm. that is another this is like bell needs to ring another aspect of what you're doing is that you've got all this collaboration and cross-fertilization of artists and craftspeople and and manufacturers and filmmakers in the space what where are you what is this place called because the images appear on the wallets in this first project yeah we're uh, we're at a a community that's referred to as the brewery in los angeles it's near downtown kind of near chinatown and the lumi's entire history happened at the brewery. <laughs> Stefan and I both lived there in different lofts while we were students at Art Center College of Design. Lumi actually started, and I'll let Stefan explain this, but Lumi actually started in Stefan's loft's um, laundry room. We used to pay his roommate 50 <laughs> extra dollars a month so that we could basically commandeer the laundry room. And it was just, and the reason was it has it had all it had the tiles. elements. It had tiles. Yeah. No, seriously, the reason we, that, we, that we picked it is because it had, yeah, it had a tile floor so we couldn't ruin it with dye. It had a sink and had a washing machine and no light. Yeah, I had no windows. So it was like this perfect environment for to, for Lumi to kind of like grow and for us to do our first experiments. So that's also what our first Kickstarter money went to, $50 in rent for our laundry room. <laughs> Some people have the garage origin story. You have the laundry room origin <laughs> right. story. And, and, but good. you refer to the brewery. I mean, it used to be, it's called the brewery because it used to be the Pabst Blue Ribbon Brewery. It's a huge complex. All kinds of creative people live there of every discipline, you know, artists, painters, photographers, architects, designers, textile artists, everything. And so when you talk about the photos that are on our um, first Kickstarter wallets, those are all from a photographer who works at the brewery. Uh, yeah. Actually, he does lino cuts. But um, <laughs> and one day during yeah. our Kickstarter campaign, we were so we we you know we had promised people wallets and whatnot. And and one day, like as it was getting closer to us needing to deliver, we were like, we don't have like great images. Like you know, in order to mm. in order to you know, if you're going to print an image on something, you know how good it turns out. Obviously, depends on how good the image is. We knew that there was this um, this neighbor we have. His name's Dave Lefner. He's a really talented artist, and we knew he we had this neighbor, and so we literally just got up from where we were, went to his doorstep, knocked on his door, and said, Dave, we need photos. And so and so he let us in, and we went through boxes of photos, and we chose some that oh were very God. iconic to the area, and, and that's, you know, we used them. So the brewery has really been this kind of, like, you know, incubation zone for creativity that people are willing to help you out to achieve your project. And not, not far from there is where all those products were sewn, actually. Someone uh, yeah, down, right the down the street. Yeah, right down the street. People, we had, was mm-hmm. our leather shop that's put together the wallets and the bags, um, and that was another friend of ours who ran a leather a leather company who lent us his labor, you know, basically for a day or so to produce that stuff. So it's like, it's a brewery, but it's also the greater Los Angeles area. It's like, there's, and this is why I moved from Detroit, basically. It's like, if you, if you want to make stuff, talk about just like a few, a few minutes from your doorstep, being able to just make anything you want. It's like, it's kind of incredible. Well, LA is a character in every movie that, that's shot in LA and LA is clearly a character in every business that started there as well. So it seems like such a fun thing to have all that creative ferment um see i keep saying it's ferment it's a brewery and a ferment going on around there i took a picture when i was there it was such a beautiful day i was taking pictures as we were walking around and i took a picture of the big paradox iron yeah. uh, sign on the side of this giant building and blue sky behind it and i made it my twitter background and somebody within a few days is like when were you in la mm-hmm. you know like oh because it's so iconic people know this you know it's and it's the kind of thing that used to get torn down because it was seen as the past it's industrial it's whatever and now it gets repurposed and becomes this this breeding ground of companies like yours. You want to know uh, something you know, funny, though? Just in, in classic, mm. classic L.A. style, that Paradox Iron Signs, the building is, is, is very, very old, built in um, the 1890s, but that Paradox Iron Sign was painted on for a movie. <laughs> in classic L.A. Oh, style, which you think is the most authentic, is in fact not. Oh, my not. gosh. That's perfect. Yeah, well, it's, right, it looks so authentic that it can't be, right? Yeah. But the building it was is real. Old, but the building oh, my is. God. I mean, when we, we used to, you know, work out of there, and, and once in a while, we'd arrive at the office, and it would be completely surrounded with the NYPD. <laughs> <laughs> and they were eating donuts, and it was because they were shooting on oh t- TV shows there. 
Oh, that's great. Well, you know, when I was there, it reminded me, I was telling you folks about uh, Stuart Brand's book, The Whole Earth Catalog Guy, mm-hmm. about the how buildings learn, which is a fascinating book, and I recommend to all listeners, too, because it has a remarkable degree of applicability to how companies are made. He didn't write it that way, mm-hmm. but he has this low-road, high-road building thing where the low-road buildings are places like the Paradox Iron Building and the brewery facility. People don't care about them. They think they're going to get torn down. You can do anything you want. You were telling me you put a bathroom yeah. in your we, space? Yeah, in the first week. <laughs> I brought a jackhammer in and just literally just just replumbed my space. I didn't tell anyone. Um, you know, I only told my next door neighbors <laughs> that they wouldn't kill me, and uh, and that was it. You know, the, the property owners they don't care. They just don't care. Because it's not, there's no value, there's value in them running out the space and the, the cost of it, the sort of sunk cost is from a hundred years ago. So they're getting this residual value from it. And the high road buildings are the ones like office parks, class A office space where you can't do, you can't even put a tack mm-hmm. into the wall. And people who run high road buildings think that they've never changed or absolutely unchangeable, which is absolutely not true, but they seem immutable, but they're worse for collaboration. It's harder to create the space and do what you need in the space to make things happen. But you're in the perfect spot for that. I should also mention, you know, you have a headquarters now. You also have office space you share with a uh, with an internet famous person, Adam. That's Lissigar. right. Yeah, Sandwich Video is is upstairs from the the very office we're speaking to you from. He's such a wonderful self starter too. Is that it's sort of his career is improbable, and that he never meant to be. I think a celebrity internet video person, <laughs> but he's so good in the dryness of what he does that that turned into his business. That he makes these wonderful videos for internet startups and and online businesses. So he's kind of, he seems like he's part of that loop of things too. Yeah. And actually, you know, what's interesting is a lot of people know us through our videos and video, funny enough, is, is a really big part of our business in the way we communicate everything that we do. And so actually two of our employees uh, have, you know, backgrounds in film. We, we actually worked with Adam and, and his uh, second in command over there, JP, on a video that's on our front page. Is that the one of Jesse walking that's through right. multiple color? Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's incredibly evocative. It tells the story and it's also just, it's visually beautiful. You want to, you know, I remember when it first came out, I'm like, I don't even know what this is, but I'm going to watch this again <laughs> and again. Well, I think it's a, so maybe it's a function of us being located in LA, but we always think about video as like our first place to, to go when we try to explain something because it can be so visual and evocative. And and having you know Adam's feedback and cross pollination is is always awesome about you know on that on that level. This is great. This is another bell rings because it's part of the it's the uh, it's that collaboration with people who might in some ways they could otherwise choose to be closed, but instead there's openness, and so everyone working together. It's that rise uh, the rising tide lifts all boats thing, and I feel like that is a fundamental part of what new kinds of businesses like yours are doing is that you're, you know, you have proprietary secrets about the dyes, of course, but you also have this openness to your whole process, what you're doing, you use Kickstarter and you reveal what you're doing on Kickstarter. You're working with other people who are also sharing their process and what they do. So someone can't duplicate, let's say your die, but they can look at it and say, Oh, I know a lot of what they did. Or they can even call, you know, you guys are very generous with your time. Do you call up and say, how did you pull this off? And then that sparks more people. Again, proof of concept saying these guys did it. They have a compelling thing. I have something compelling. And I guess there is a way to tell this story and make it happen. A big component of what we've been doing lately is educational. We've been using a a platform called Skillshare to actually teach classes about how you can take your product to Kickstarter or, you know, how you can actually use the Lumi process to start a business. A big part of it is educational for us too. You need President Obama to talk, you know, to call you guys. Like, oh, like, yeah. it's State of the Union. Like, I was, 3D I was printing blown and, away by that when I saw yeah. that. I watched it on YouTube and they had a picture. He was just of, like, uh, and 3D printing. You're like, oh my God, he knows what this is. I mean, not that he's, he's a smart guy, but I you're know. like, the amount of insular thing, like, in, like the amount that's taken off while he's been in office, where in his briefing time did anyone be able to tell him yeah, this and him to be able unreal. to pin his finger on it and say, this could change things? It's unreal. And, and just, yeah, the, I'm that kind of topic of openness. I mean, at several points in the process, you know, we had brainstormed or people had told us, you know, like, oh, the best thing you can do with this idea and and the fact that, you know, there's this IP and stuff is be kind of cloistered about it. Like, you know, you should start a printing empire and you'll be the only ones in the world who can do this type of printing. And like, you should do this, you should do that. And, and we, you know, and we were making money like doing prints and we, and of course we had the thought to ourselves, like, you know, will we cannibalize our own business? Like if we, if we just let anyone do this and, and of course the answer is no. And of course that's what we arrived at that what we're really building now is so much more powerful and the fact that we produce these tools and we still get to do all sorts of creative work i mean people on a design side commission us to do sets of 
like furniture and art pieces and we have kind of like a thriving little design business that we don't often talk about because it's more just like the work that we do for fun so of course you know it doesn't affect any of that and now you know we're empowering people over the world to have their own similar businesses and um, and we you know even when we put out designs um, our projects online we release like all of the image assets and stuff to those it, it is kind of you know high tide does rise all boats like there's never been a downside to that way of handling it I have two good stories and I'll tell briefly about this. I think they illustrate the point where you're at is that Lewis Comfort Tiffany made the wonderful stained glass lamps. When he and his workshop, they would just throw all the remnant glass into like apparently like a railroad car. Mm-hmm. And eventually the thing is full. When he died and they were selling off assets, this is a graphic design professor told me this. I've never been able to run down the whole story, but this fellow was in his 70s when he told me the story and I believe in everything else he told me was true. <laughs> so I'm going to believe yeah. it, which is that someone, there was, I don't know if it was an auction or a sale or whatever, someone buys the boxcar full of broken glass. Mm And you go, why would you do that? You think, ah, whenever anyone had a Tiffany lamp anywhere in the world that broke, this person had the replacement piece for it that was exactly the same tin. So they cornered the market. And, you know, that's that's a physical thing. And maybe that's a good or bad, or maybe they should have, maybe it should have been other hands or developed process. But if you want, if you have a Tiffany lamp, the only way you can repair it perfectly is with this glass. The the other was when I worked at uh, at Kodak at this teaching facility in Maine. We had the very first commercial uh, digital camera, like the model model number one, serial number one, and. People would come and take classes there on how to use this thing because Kodak was just selling it around the country. And one person showed up and said, there's this guy who learned how to use it at my company and he refuses to teach anyone else mm-hmm. because he thinks that's going to keep him having a job. Mm-hmm. So I'm here to learn how to use it. And that guy's got another thing coming yeah. when I go back. Yeah. It's, it's hard to retain that kind of proprietary knowledge because someone else will come along and and you know and then you're sunk there is so much profit to be had um in in openness it's definitely kind of the wrong type of thought that that uh destroys the value in a project and that again is why we're approaching it as a process like we're you know we're supplying all of these tools and people even if someone else were to produce our dye i think that people would still come to us because we've actually developed a system for them like we have we have this app that they're using and so we we kind of we build up value in in our creation and and build up an audience and at the end of the day that's where the value lies oh yeah let's talk about your second kickstarter project too because i think that happened almost was it two years two and a half years later right that was middle of june of 2012 so not that long ago and i think that demonstrates where you'd come from and where you were going is when you reached the point for that kickstarter you were wanted to go into production you had the dyes assembled three colors of dye you had kind of a whole system right you had the app Mm -hmm. you had you were selling it you would sell a kit to people with transparency transparency film with textile uh, soap, detergent soap, and the dyes. And that was a 50 grand goal. How much did you raise from that Kickstarter? We raised 268 total. Yeah, <laughs> we overshot the goal a little bit. <laughs> this was to jumpstart manufacture, right? This was your core funding to then be able to ma- to manufacture these dyes at a large scale? Yeah, is that exactly. And to, bring, and to bring all those other components you mentioned to market. You know, in order to bring all those components to market, we need to produce some of a certain volume. And so we actually, in, in terms of like physical product companies, you know, we were at a, a very classic kind of crossroads where it's a fact of kind of economic life that you need to produce things at a certain volume to make them economical, to hit a certain price point and to get them out to a certain audience. At the end of the day, you know, there's more and more interesting routes emerging, but there's several just kind of classic ones. There's, you know, you can go to retail in a big way and basically strike some sort of contract that gives you that minimum volume. You can take a big investment essentially to just, just to front the cost yourself and then and then go you know and sell it and then there's interesting new options kind of emerging and one of them to us was was Kickstarter and the huge value in that that's that's still it's discussed but I feel like it's never discussed enough is that we that what Kickstarter represented was one it represented the volume that we needed essentially you know with our minimum goal to to bring these products to market but two we were taking them we cut the middleman out we were taking them directly to our customer forging a relationship with our customer and building an audience simultaneously which is usually more of a linear process. You know, usually you have to develop a product, then you try to build an audience for it, then you try to, you know, like establish a customer base. Like it's like we got to do all of that in one shot with our Kickstarter campaign. <laughs> Now, there's another remarkable property about your Kickstarter campaign, which when I was at Kickstarter headquarters, they mentioned too, is you guys fulfilled your <laughs> 3,500 something backers. Yeah. You did it on time. So the, the goal was, the goal was raised on uh, July 29, 2012. You said you were going to deliver between, it looked like, uh, or in September yeah. and, 
did you deliver in September? Yeah, it everything, like everything shipped out in September. The only people who didn't receive in September were international backers, which is a whole kind of another topic because transit time is, is completely mm-hmm. different for them. But, um, but yeah, so, uh, everything was shipped out and, and on time. And I think that the, to, um, I think the real reason for that, and this is a, another topic that I, that I touch on, and it's kind of a big statement, but basically like a Kickstarter campaign is like a miniature, business. And, um, and I know they don't want it to be viewed as a store. So I don't mean that in the true economic sense. What I mean is like every type of topic that you need to think about when you start a business, promotion, managing people, managing your time, customer service, customer service marketing, all, marketing, all of those things that you need to consider when you birth a new idea. It's like doing all of that, but for a miniature amount of time or for like a set amount of time. And so I think that's where that's a, that's a big pill to swallow, especially if you've, if you've never been an entrepreneur before. The reason we delivered on time is because because from the outset, we knew how hard it was going to be, and we and we already had kind of an entrepreneurial experience under our belts, so we were able to more accurately determine that. The other thing, though, is that we started investing in producing those products before the campaign ended. You saw the, the acceleration was there. You're like, we're funded. So you went out and started working on getting everything running before the, the checks were Yeah, arrived. exactly. So we got a little jump on it and it was basically crucial, but, but like, you know, a lot of projects don't get that luxury. Yeah, it's tricky, right? Because I know people who they literally need the cash from the project until almost sometimes two weeks after the project ends, until they have that in their bank account, they cannot start the, uh, you know, the glaciers running down yeah. and forming continents. Uh, and so it's a great position to be in, I think, to be able to start early or to be able, my question will be is at what point will there be banks or other lending institutions Ooh, or even it's possible. That? That's interesting. Yeah. When you can say, or Kickstarter itself, I mean, it gets complicated, but because of microinvestment rules it's possible, they may not want to be in the yeah. business, but you could advance money against a successful campaign. Uh, and in the same way that people get money against stock options. And that's, too. Yeah. That's fascinating. And the question, and to, in my mind that, you know, it really starts becoming so many questions. Like, do we even want to go that route? Because like something that was interesting to us, and especially having that experience of doing the first Kickstarter campaign in 2009 and then this one last year, is the difference in terms of expectations of the backers. Um, you know, in, in 2009, we had a very like select audience of people. We, we basically explained the concept of Kickstarter to all those people. Kickstarter was so new that none of those people basically even knew what it was before they were backing. And then they were like, you know, very invested in the idea. They felt like they were backers. They were very patient. In 2012, you know, we had a lot of people who would email us like several days after the campaign ended saying, you know, where is my order? Like, you know, I gave you money. Like, where is my order? Like people who just fundamentally didn't really understand the idea that when they gave the money, the product that we described didn't actually exist. We are making it for them. Like you invested in an idea and we have, you know, promised to fulfill on that. Amazon has ruined us all in a certain respect. I expect to get everything in two days and for it to ship free. <laughs> and and so do backers. You know, it's kind of they have that built an expectation. And so we, you know, I think it's up to all project creators to kind of keep reinforcing the language of rewards as opposed to talking about orders and to continue keeping that culture going because that is the beautiful element. That's a beautiful element of people who aren't antsy, who understand that they backed a concept and will have a little bit of patience. I think those are great lessons. I think from start to finish is I, it's, it's also Kickstarter makes it possible for people who have never had a substantial amount of money in their hands to suddenly be given a huge <laughs> sum of money where they've either been employees before or they've been uh, doing small projects. And I mean, I think that's some of the projects that have really off the rails are people who never consulted a tax yeah. professional about whether they had a burden or, or worried about getting up to scale. And every, I think, and especially on the product side, I mean, you all have an interesting thing is that you're creating uh, quantities that would be put in a bottle, but you're essentially creating, you know, vats of things as opposed to each unique item needing to be crafted from multiple parts and assembled into some intricate form like uh, the sure. Pebble Watch or something. And and people never having made a Pebble Watch before. People make huge amounts of chemicals all the time, uh, time and put them into bottles. So I think people wind up in situations where they exceed the possible scale of what can be manufactured in a certain period of time. And it seems like you anticipated that in your delivery schedule and also being able to back that out up front 
gave yourself the extra time to, to get the stuff in the bottles and shrink yeah. wrapped it out yeah. the door. I mean, producing physical products is extremely time consuming and difficult. And I think that if you've never, if you've never been there or done that, it's sometimes, you know, I, I, it's almost nearly impossible sometimes to anticipate everything that could come up. And so I applaud anyone who's, who's willing to try it. I'm really glad that we fulfilled on time, but I'm also extremely understanding of those who don't. Well, so the future for Lumi is, is, uh, bigger, better, more colorful. <laughs> right? You're have, you've got three, co- three, three colors right now. You've got a market in place and you've got three colors of inks. And obviously the printer in me says, okay, you've got red, orange, and blue. I want some other colors in there so I can do, I've seen some, you showed me an example of, of a process color, a three color work that looks surprisingly mm-hmm. full color. So clearly more colors of inks, or new processes. You've got the app update coming that'll let people do the augmented reality and get negatives directly. I mean, we're fascinated with how people image on fabric and, and making that continually more approachable, uh, kind of cracking that open in terms of self-expression and, and making sure, like we've been talking about, that people who don't currently self-identify as maker and DIY find this um, accessible and also find it as a gateway to uh, to making and to their own creativity. So there's a lot of directions in terms of technology that we plan to go a lot further. In terms of this year, definitely the, the app experience as well as we are definitely working on more colors and more kitted experiences so that if you are that kind of um, mm. early user, you can have a first really successful project that gives you that taste of your own capability so you can go further. I think the other thing is is just audience. Like we're transitioning from from a place where we have had a very niche audience in different areas. You know, people who are into say cyanotype and other alternative uh, photo processes are very into ink dye. People who are experienced with screen printing, people who are into crafting, people who are in you know the maker area. And now through our app and through we're, we're you know now starting to get into more retail locations we're starting to get a little bit more mainstream audience where the cross-section for them is with, say, fashion, for example. We're, we're benefiting from a trend that's really interesting where in the past 10, 15 years, kind of since Gap emerged and now into you know companies like H&M or Uniqlo or Zara or American Apparel, Urban Outfitters, all these companies are now able to produce fashion very quickly that is tailored, that is mostly basics and blank, and people want to make those basics their own. And so between everything that has happened in the ready-to-wear fashion market and now everything that's happening with iPhone photography becoming so so good and the, and the app developing, we're, we're able to allow people who have any number of interests. You know, if you have a, a tiny band, a high school band, and you have five people and, and literally five fans, you could make <laughs> 10 t-shirts. It's that ability to scale, I think, to be able to make something that's unique and one-off or in a small quantity and not have that huge setup cost. I mean, that was the sort of joy of color mm-hmm. laser printers or laser printers was that in, in every stage in development, we keep coming up with new manufacturing processes that let you make one thing very well or or as good as needs to be without having the setup cost. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing your experience, your expertise. It was great. <laughs> thank thanks you. for yeah, being thank on the show. Thank you and thanks for visiting. This is The New Disruptors, a podcast about bridging the connection between creation and attention. You can find us on the web at muleradio.net slash new disruptors. On Twitter and ADN, we are at new disruptors. Subscribe to the podcast in your favorite app or through iTunes. If you'd like to sponsor the show, visit sponsor.muleradio.net. You can drop me a note via new disruptors at muleradio.net. Our theme music was composed by my dear friend Jeff Tolbert. I'm Glenn Fleischman. Join us again next time.